A wise MC once told me, if you don't feel the flow, don't force the rhymes, just lay low. But it's hard to watch these markets hitting record highs. One after the other, where's the surprise? Just the other day, stocks look ready for a correction. Inflation's hurting spending. We have a rise in infections. Corporate profits are strong, but the future looks dicey. Are we going to lock down again? We were recovering so nicely, but with interest rates so low and yields so dismal, bond market returns are abysmal, and the Fed's got our back, so why should we stress? Let's just tune into episode 45 of the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome aboard and welcome back. The Investopedia Express is brought to you by NewRes. The home buying process can be overwhelming, confusing, and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. NewRes can let you know what to expect and take you through the mortgage process step by step. Learn more at newres.com slash findmyhome. That's newres.com slash findmyhome. Well, we're going to go deep into the U.S. housing market a little later in the show when Julian Hebron of The Basis Point gets on the train for a few stops. But first... You spin me right round like a record, baby, right round. That's right, more records for the U.S. stock market. The Dow closed above 35,000 for the first time ever last Friday, bringing its 2021 gain to 14% and rising 1% for the week, despite dropping more than 700 points last Monday. The S&P 500 rose 2% for the week, and the Nasdaq Composite added 2.8%. The 10-year Treasury yield rebounded to 1.29% on Friday, easing concerns about the economic recovery that the bond market sparked last Monday when the 10-year fell to a five-month low of 1.13%. 1.13%, folks, that's low country. Meanwhile, investors around the world were pouring money into U.S. financial assets in the first half of 2021. Call it a sign of confidence that investors thought the world's largest economy remains poised to pull through the pandemic better than many others. According to Refinitiv Lipper, investors worldwide have funneled more than $900 billion into U.S. domiciled funds and ETFs during the first half of the year. That's a record, folks, going all the way back to 1992 when they started collecting these records, and it's more than investors have put into funds elsewhere around the world combined during the first two quarters of 2021. But global investors may be starting to change their tune a little bit. Flows into U.S. funds were about $51 billion in June, down from $168 billion in May. And it was the first month inflows fell below $100 billion since January. The flow is slowing. Meanwhile, flows to foreign funds increased to over $93 billion last month from $84 billion in May. Let's watch that. You know where else money's been moving in the past 18 months? ESG investments. That's right. Environmental, social, and governance-themed assets have seen windfalls of cash amid the pandemic. Inflows into ESG products grew 140% in 2020 as $203 billion flowed in, according to Moody's. And a recent survey Investopedia did with Treehugger, our green sister site, shows many investors began using ESG principles to make investment decisions for the first time. 58% of respondents to our survey reported that their interest in ESG grew in 2020, and nearly one-fifth or 19% said they began incorporating ESG standards into their portfolios during that period. What's the attraction? Well, according to our survey, but really according to anyone who's committing money to this theme, people want to invest with their hearts and their conscience. Younger investors feel like it's the right thing to do, and they also think it's a wave that's going to roll for a very long time. They may be right. Bloomberg Intelligence estimates that ESG assets are on top to track $53 trillion by 2025. That's about a third of the investing universe. At the end of the day, though, most investors we surveyed, no matter their age, 
want long-term solid returns, and that's why they're attracted to ESG, impact, sustainable, and green investing. It's not that easy being green. Thanks, Kermit. You're the best. Check out the results of our survey with Treehugger on Investopedia.com right now. There's lots of other surprises, including your favorite ESG stocks, what issues our readers care about, and how you get your information on ESG investing, and so much more. It's a fascinating survey and worth the read. Well, let's get set up for a really busy week ahead. There's about 859 companies reporting quarterly results this week, and it's time for the heavyweights. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, and Facebook are all due to report results this week, and they are all in the crosshairs of antitrust regulators, the FTC, the European Commission, and states' attorneys generals. But business is booming, and all four of these stocks are helping drive the S&P 500 to record highs. Shares of Alphabet are up 52% year-to-date, while shares of Facebook are up 35%. Shares of Apple are at or near an all-time high, and look for Apple to report strong demand for new iPhone sales in China and the U.S., and it's got some new models coming in the fall. But pay attention to what the Mac maker says about its developments in the auto industry. You don't think Tim Cook is just going to let Alphabet have all the fun there, do you? As for autos, all eyes will be on Tesla this week when it reports results. Demand is strong for its electric vehicles, and it has some pricing power, even as it pays higher prices for semiconductors and other components. But investors should listen carefully to see if Tesla takes an impairment charge on its investment in Bitcoin. Cryptocurrency has fallen 45% from its recent highs earlier this year, and we know Tesla had about $5 billion worth of it in its treasury. CEO and crypto enthusiast Elon Musk said last week that Tesla will start accepting Bitcoin for its cars again because he thinks Bitcoin mining will become a little bit more eco-friendly soon. Incidentally, Tesla is our reader's top ESG stock pick in our survey. The Federal Open Market Committee of the Federal Reserve will meet this week on monetary policy and interest rates, and it will likely begin serious debates on whether to start tapering its asset purchases. The economy's rebounding, inflation's cooking, and the Fed's balance sheet is super swollen, but the timing and pace of this tapering is now greatly complicated by the highly contagious Delta variant of COVID-19. Most experts believe it's not going to peak until September or October. Bottom line? Don't expect the Fed to touch interest rates or start tapering its $120 billion in monthly purchases of government bonds and mortgage bonds this week. And that means it's risk on again for equity investors. In the IPO market, it's Robinhood's week. Robinhood Markets, the company behind the popular trading app, is set to begin trading Thursday on the NASDAQ, and it may have picked the perfect time to go public. The retail trading boom, especially in meme stocks and crypto, has private investors valuing the company at $37 billion. Robinhood added 18 million new customers last year, and it's making real money on payment for order flow, a.k.a. your trades. Up to 35% of Robinhood's IPO shares are going to its customers, so there's a lot riding on this initial public offering. And what a year for IPOs. After this week, 2021 could reach $97 billion in IPO proceeds so far, surpassing 2000 as the biggest year ever, and we still have five months to go. They say home is where the heart is, but for tens of millions of Americans, that's where their equity is, too. In 2020 and for the first half of this year, that equity soared as a housing shortage, low mortgage rates, and the great migration of Americans into cities like Phoenix, Denver, and Sun Valley, Idaho also pushed housing prices to all-time highs. 
This is all happening as the way we buy and sell homes is changing with disruptive digital real estate platforms, loan structures, and big institutional money moving further into the residential real estate market. No one knows that market better than Julian Hebron, the man behind the must-read real estate blog and newsletter, The Basis Point. He's also from Santa Fe, New Mexico, my hometown, which makes this conversation extra spicy. Welcome, Julian. Good to have you here. Great to be here, Caleb. What a year for homeowners, for home buyers, and for the housing market in general. How has it really changed in the past year for prospective buyers, besides the fact that there's so little inventory? Yeah, well, bidding wars have gone viral. It used to be that bidding wars were a high price market phenomenon, limited geography, places like my hometown of San Francisco, where the pricing will naturally go up because the geography is limited. And bidding wars have been a part of that market for decades. It's spread to become a national phenomenon and the headlines buyers, you know, the headlines shout of buyers ending in tears, all this kind of stuff. It's all very true. And it's very, very complicated because it can be very disheartening when you're putting your life savings on the line, as well as committing a big part of your budget in the next couple decades to this big goal, and you keep getting turned down. So that's been the biggest, most notable factor in the last year that has changed for people nationally as buyers. Right. We, we hear stories about homes being sold, sight unseen. They pop up on Realtor.com or, or any of your uh, platforms and they sell within seconds, all cash buyers. People are just shut out of the market. I think some of that is sensationalized, as you say, and some of it is very real. But these low interest rates and tight supply, they feel like they're going to be with us for a while. How should buyers and sellers approach the market, just assuming that this is going to be the way it is for the next few months, for the next few years, maybe? Yeah. So a lot of the headline data that we get around all the core indicators about inventory, sales, et cetera, are backward looking. And there's a company called Altos Research that does real-time inventory. And so if we go just from what's going on this week, which is the last week of July, inventory is finally starting to tick up just a little bit. It is still at record low levels, but it is starting to get us to a place where maybe there's a signal that things might ease off. That's number one. Number two is the seasonal cyclicality, meaning school starts again. Typically every single year, we will slow down a little bit on the sell side. So what happens is that sellers do get a little bit more nervous mid third and especially fourth quarter of each year. And that tends to be a good time for buyers in a market that's been tricky for a while. So Julian, despite all these other market forces, we have technology, the ultimate disruptor here, right? It's never been easier to look for inventory, list your home, see who's bidding on what, see what the recent prices are. How have these new platforms disrupted the market? And what are some of the key ones to keep an eye on? Like with every other space, technology is causing a major convergence of services in the housing space. So this is where the disruptors raise a bunch of money. And I have like a trajectory of what I think happens in terms of the disruptive narrative. It's like, here's this huge TAM. Like, so example, like when we talk about mortgage TAM. We're talking about total addressable market. Total addressable market. out there. So the mortgage industry funded 3.8 trillion in loans last year. We'll fund 3.5 trillion this year. We'll fund 2.36 trillion next year. These are just gigantic numbers. When you look at the total value of the housing market, you can get into the trillions by looking at the loans plus the value of the assets. It's about 30 trillion. 
when the disruptors look at this TAM, they're like, there's this huge TAM and we're going to disrupt the whole thing. The difference with housing, which then is very much closely associated with lending and banking, is that it is so highly regulated. Mortgage lending is the most highly regulated component of all of consumer finance and banking. So it's very, very difficult to disrupt. So what you have to do is the land and expand strategy like every disruptor does. I'm going to pick a spot. I'm going to come in. So what has happened is either scale technology plays start going what they call down funnel. So example, Zillow was a lead provider. They created this ability for all of us to look at our homes so that they could take us in as leads. And there's a billion plus visits to Zillow each year. And then they sell access to us, to realtors predominantly, and then to lenders. That's like a billion plus dollar business and growing. But when they started going, quote unquote, as they say, down funnel, what they started doing is saying, well, shoot, maybe we should monetize and take some of that real estate transaction. 6% is basically what it costs in in America to, that that's the going commission for a home sale split between buyer and seller. So disruptors look at that. They say they're trying to bring efficiency to the market, but they're not trying to bring efficiency to the market. They're saying that's 6%. I'll take that. When they look at mortgage, they're like, yep. And I'll take the revenue on both the mortgage originations because those volumes are so big. And I will also take the approximately 25 basis points in servicing for servicing the mortgage title escrow. So when you go quote unquote down funnel, you start getting into the businesses that you were previously providing leads for. So Zillow has done this. Open door has done this. It's extremely difficult to get into real estate brokerage or lending. Brokerage is notoriously low margin. Lending can have its good moments where the average gain on sale margins you know, or in the like 5% range during a refi boom year, like last year and this year, that can go down by about half next year. That's why some of these newly public mortgage companies are not trading so well right now. But the disruptors that are starting to get into this business of like, we had this billion dollar lead business. Let's start getting into real estate brokerage where we'll just, like Zillow will just buy your home from you. You fill out a form, they'll just buy it. So it's good for you. That's maybe the message for for the audience is it's great for the consumers. I was advising a friend last night. I'm like, let's go on Zillow and open door and see how much they'll pay before you hire a realtor. Because it's like, you can sell it instantly. iBuyer is a term that you guys have probably heard. Instant buyer. That's what it means. So it's cool for the consumer. It's useful. Like try to sell it to them. If they lowball you, they'll connect you with a realtor or you find your own realtor. Same thing. They're trying to grow the value of these businesses now by adding mortgage. I might come to that in another segment if we want to get into that. But for the consumer, it's like use these services. But when it comes to getting a loan and understanding your affordability, all of them are nascent in mortgage. And you are best served kind of using local lenders. That part of the business is still very, very traditional. You can go to some of the online players. Rocket is extremely sophisticated. Better Mortgage is another new player that's kind of going after the rocket model. And they, even though they have centralized sales forces that, as an example, aren't on the ground in Santa Fe, where you are, San Francisco or Colorado, where I spend my time, but they're still decent and they're getting better. It's just that they won't have that local advice sometimes that a lot of experienced loan officers have. And the way that it's all regulated, just so everyone knows, is that pricing is so efficient from a rate perspective. 
you're going to get the same price whether you use a quote-unquote digital lender or a much more experienced loan officer because the latter is regulated in a way where they used to be able to charge a premium to you for their extra expertise, but now it doesn't work that way. After the crisis, that was all reconciled. So you can get somebody with a decade plus of experience to advise you, and they're not going to charge you any more than, than an online lender will. So I would always go for the experience. You mentioned some of the companies that went public, the mortgage and lending companies that went public in the past year, and they haven't done so well, which seems oxymoronic given the fact that real estate has been so hot. Just name a couple of those companies so our audience is aware that there are these new entrants into the public market that we're hoping to take advantage of the public appetite for housing. Yeah. So let's do mortgage first, and then maybe I'll do a couple real estate examples. So in mortgage, I mean, there were six main IPOs. Rocket, which is the renamed version of Quicken Loans. They're the number one lender in the country. They funded $320 billion in mortgages last year. They traded about 17 a share market cap of like $34 billion. That one's interesting because they have a diversified set of services that I think Wall Street doesn't understand yet. But you can even see it, 17 a share, like it's not trading that well because, and this is going to be the case for all of them to answer your question, it's not about what's been happening. It's about, as you know, Wall Street is a discounting mechanism. They're looking forward to this massive shift. I'll repeat a number I said before in mortgage. We go from $3.83 trillion in total funded mortgage volume in America last year to $2.36 trillion in total funded volume next year. So the, the street looks at that and is like, okay, this is going to be a big adjustment. So we're going to discount all these stocks now, right? With that said, $2 trillion is a more normal mortgage market. I'll do a few more. Loan Depot is another diversified firm, full disclosure, a former employer of mine. They did $101 billion last year. They traded $11 a share, $3.5 billion market cap. And then there's four more that all went public that are really well known in the mortgage space, but are a little bit more arcane in investor circles, if you will. United Wholesale, they, but they, listen to this number. They funded $183 billion in mortgages last year. They're a giant, but they're trading at $8 a share, $12 billion market cap. Another one out of San Diego called Guild. They funded $34 billion last year. They traded $16 a share, $945 million market cap. And then Blackstone had owned a company called Finance of America. They funded $29 billion. Last year, they recently IPO'd their $7 a share, $430 million market cap. And then HomePoint Financial is a firm that was, among other early investors, incubated by Goldman Sachs. They funded $62 billion last year, trading at $5 a share, $693 million market cap. So you can see that like these things, mortgage is a cash flow business. It's not a valuation business. So these companies do well. They operate at scale. They serve millions of consumers extremely well, but they're not these sexy Wall Street names like the Robin Hoods and the other fintechs, the chimes of the world that a lot of us tend to talk about in the, if you will, traditional fintech space. You mentioned Blackstone, which is for all intents and purposes, a big Wall Street firm, one of the biggest private equity firms that is a publicly traded firm, also one of the biggest real estate owners in the world, 
definitely one of the biggest warehouse real estate owners in the world. They're aggressive buyers. So there is this myth in financial media and around the mortgage game that private equity firms and banks have been buying up swaths of real estate around the country, around the world amid the pandemic, just like they did in 2008 and 2009. Is it true, Julian? And if so, does it change the landscape for home buyers and renters? Or is it simply one of those myths that we like to tell ourselves to scare people in the media? First of all, John Gray, who's risen to leadership position within Blackstone, came up as their real estate genius at Blackstone and is a legit genius. So they've always participated, not just in the home buying, I'll touch on that in a second, but they made a major sweep through the mortgage industry and bought a bunch of mortgage players, including the one I just mentioned. So they participate in housing in a number of ways. So as Gray was coming up in the last cycle, the same thing happened. It was less noisy then. Social media wasn't what it was then. And so you're right, we do have so much more noise around this but you can count on a little more than one hand the number of players Blackstone included, private equity, as well as just like real estate investment trust type vehicles that will buy single family homes for rent in cycles like this. They did it last time and they're doing it this time and the headlines far outweigh the impact. So example, there's going to be 7 million new and existing homes sold in America this year. There's going to be about 7.4 million new and existing homes sold in America next year. And we're talking more in the tens of thousands, low-ish tens of thousands, like the aggressive firms will buy like 18,000 homes this year, you know, but again, if you're like talking about like five to seven firms that are doing this, it's just not that many homes. That's point number one. Point number two is that you have some of these firms that actually really do help renters because they do rent to own. So part of your rental payment over a one to three year period would actually go towards accruing toward a down payment to buy that home you're renting. So first of all, it's not all bad. In the last cycle, that was highly reported. This cycle, all the headlines are institutional buyers are buying homes out from under you. That's the message. And it's just not true relative to the numbers and how they work relative to total home sales in America. So I think people need to remember about the affordability part and the fact that institutional buyers are not going to push you out. You have the opportunity to win bids on homes if you're a serious home buyer. Myth officially busted. Thank you to Julian uh, at the basis point for that. Okay. So quick advice for our listeners. If you're intending to buy a home over the next six months to a year, what would you tell them to do right now? The time of year that we are entering into is a great time for buyers when the market has been skewed towards sellers like it has. The weather changes, everyone gets busy, sellers start to become more anxious, and if the inventory rising trend that started in the last 30 days continues, which it is likely to given the basic cyclicality of inventory generally rising after the summer, it's a great time for buyers to be serious. So that's number one, is stay in the game between now and the holidays. When I used to originate loans, I would work with all my realtors to plug in buyers during those November, December holiday periods. Again, always operating in a very hot, high, if you will, seller type of a market and getting buyers plugged in when sellers are feeling nervous. Now that's a national phenomenon. So if you have the wherewithal during the holidays, do it. Rates should stay 
low. We actually tipped below the 3% mark this past week on rates. I would anticipate that rates stay between 2.75 and 3.25 between now and the end of the year. So if rates do come up a little bit, you do need to hang in with your lender to, if you will, re-update a pre-approval that they've done for you as you move through the coming months. Because if rates go up a little bit, they need to recalculate, make sure you still qualify, make sure you're still cool with the numbers. And most importantly, make sure that your pre-approval is all dialed. What I mean by that is they take in all your information, they get you pre-approved, and they write a letter for each offer that goes out that says, hey, this person can buy this home for six twenty-five dollars with this down payment, and they can close in this many days. That's how you win bidding wars, is that you have to have a lender that gets how to write a pre-approval letter that can work with your realtor to close it fast. You have to close in less than 30 days. So those are kind of the, I guess, three tips for folks over the, uh, that's actually over the next five months, not quite even six. Okay. On the flip side, Julian, if you plan to sell your house in the next six months, how should you approach it? So I will just repeat this stat that I gave a little bit earlier about inventory starting to rise this summer. So we want to take a very close look at that. And if that trend continues over the next two months as we wind down summer, that's when you're going to start to know nobody can ever call the top of a market, but you're going to have to start to get serious about whether you may be at the top of your price point in your market. So first and foremost, you got to keep a close eye on rising inventory. You can talk to your realtor if you don't know what that means. But the long story short is that as a seller, A realtor in this market, for the most part, will always tell you that they want to list it for a little lower, first of all, to manage their own expectations, and second of all, because they want to come below certain psychological thresholds for your city and neighborhood and street so that they can get a bidding war going. So just know that that's how realtors sell to you as a seller. If you need to press them on that, if the market starts slowing down, then it's best to see whether they think that demand is still there and they're doing it for a bidding war purpose or what is the actual price. But you always have to stay focused on what's the price that I am comfortable walking away with. It's it's just basic buy-sell psychology. It's just more emotional because it's your home. I would also be very, very cognizant of the fact that you very likely have a buy on the other side. So you kind of need to determine whether you are going to sell and then sit for the buyer side of the market to cool, or are you going to sell and buy at once? So that's where you do need to go through with your lender and determine your net proceeds and how much you're putting into a new home, whether you're doing that or not. Most people that are selling are buying again. So you need to do that math before you list, or else you'll just find yourself in a stressed situation as you kind of come into the new year. But that's that's the advice for the next six months there. Terrific advice. Last question for you. What's the most interesting thing happening in the U.S. housing market today that no one's talking about from your perspective? There are some rules around the way that you can buy and finance a home that don't make headlines that to me are the most interesting thing that are going on right now because they reconcile very much with a home buyer and owner sentiment that comes out of the pandemic, which is that PwC did this survey this year that says that the majority of people 
want to and expect to work at home at least three days a week or more. What does that mean? It means I might be able to live anywhere I want, which means that maybe I'll hang in my normal city for a while so I make sure that my employment situation is stable, but I want to buy somewhere else. When I do that, I might also want to rent that home as a way of hedging because I'm going to keep the one I live in here. I'm going to buy this one over here. I'm going to make sure everything's cool. I'm going to live there. I'm going to do this for a year, and then I'm going to move there when I know that remote work is official now. So nobody knows about this, but there's three ways to get loans. One is an owner-occupied loan. That's kind of like the lowest rates and the lowest down payment. Second home has very, very similar rates and the same down payment. And then investor properties are like the third one, which the rates are a little higher. The down payments are typically a little higher, 25% or more but you are free to rent it whenever you want. What most realtors who are advising you don't know is that if you were doing it as a second home, even though the rate's the same, second home loans have these arcane provisions that don't let you rent it, especially in that first year. But even in the subsequent years, there's all these rules. You kind of can, but mostly can't use a management company. There's all kinds of things that would jam you up and make your loan come due in full if you screw up. So what happens is that people get bad advice and they're like, well, we know you want to move over to this other city, but like, you know, let it play for a year. So just rent, buy it as a second home and rent it for a while. It doesn't work. So the advice is you have, you have, when you buy an owner occupied loan, you have to live there for one year and then you're free to rent it however you want whenever you want. So that's one thing. And then number two is there's some rules with Fannie and Freddie who buy most of the mortgages in the country that have made second home and investor loan rates go much, much higher in recent months. And that's just something that's totally underreported that people don't know. So if you're one of those people that's like, I'm going to buy my, if you will, my vacation home, but I might move there soon because of remote work. You need to know all those factors. And the takeaway is ask your lender about the different types of loans, owner-occupied, second home, and investor property so that you make sure that you don't get the wrong loan for your goals. That's great information and great advice and definitely not something that is you know, front and center for home buyers or home sellers out there. So we appreciate that and we appreciate all the great insight. Julian Hebron, the man behind The Basis Point. Folks, read the newsletter. Follow Julian on Twitter at The Basis Point or on the social media platforms. So good to have you on The Express. Thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. Thanks, man. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Manuel in Riverside, California. Manuel suggests unicorn, and we love that term this week given the upcoming IPO of Robinhood Markets, one of the biggest unicorns of them all. According to my favorite website, unicorn is a term used in the venture capital industry to describe a privately held startup company with a value of over $1 billion. The term was first popularized by venture capitalist Eileen Lee, the founder of Cowboy VC, a venture capital firm based in Palo Alto, California. As we said earlier, Robinhood's going public at a $37 billion valuation. Expectations are kind of high for the company, so we'll see if this unicorn has some real magic after it gallops into the public markets. Great suggestion, Manuel. You'll be getting a pair of the fiendishly handsome Investopedia socks in the mail, and we'd like to see you sporting those at the Star Crab Restaurant one evening real soon. 
We're going to let Ben Bernanke, the former Fed chair, take us out this week. Here's Bernanke on September 18, 2013, at the conclusion of the Fed's two-day meeting on interest rates. Five years after the great financial crisis and the Fed was still buying up to $85 billion per month in government and mortgage-backed bonds and holding interest rates down near zero. Does that sound familiar? It's called quantitative easing, and it was our term of the week on the podcast last fall. Unemployment back then was still above 7%, and the labor force participation rate was very low. Not because people didn't want to work, they did, but companies were still wounded from the crisis and they were not hiring. It's the mirror image of what we see today in the labor market, but the same monetary policy tools are being used today, eight years later. Investors were waiting to see when the Fed would taper its asset purchases, because they thought when that safety net was pulled, markets would tumble. But Bernanke and the FOMC were not ready to taper those purchases. Here's Ben Bernanke explaining why. At the meeting concluded earlier today, the sense of the committee was that the broad contours of the medium-term economic outlook, including economic growth sufficient to support ongoing gains in the labor market and inflation moving towards its objective, were close to the views it held in June. But in evaluating whether a modest reduction in the pace of asset purchases would be appropriate at this meeting, however, the committee concluded that the economic data do not yet provide sufficient confirmation of its baseline outlook to warrant such a reduction. Well, at its next meeting in December of 2013, Bernanke finally did announce that the Fed would reduce its asset purchases or its quantitative easing by $10 billion per month. Guess what? The stock market hiccup and then cruised higher. And sometimes the fear is worse than the reality. Expect to hear similar words out of Fed Chair Jerome Powell's mouth this week when the Fed wraps up its two-day monetary policy meeting on Wednesday. No tapering, no change in rates. The U.S. economy is still not back on its feet. Well, let's keep our footing strong this week. It's going to be a busy one. Special thanks to NewRes, our sponsor for the Investopedia Express. If you're ready to buy a new home, the right resources can make a big difference. From finding your dream home to navigating the mortgage process, NewRes has you covered for all your home buying needs. Learn more at NewRes.com slash buymyhome. That's NewRes.com slash buymyhome. And we'll talk to you again a little further on down the line. <music>